Robots Radio. Games. Lore. Stories. Community. Just press play. short rest oh I see they said you'd be showing up about now come on through the portal best not keep the lore mistress and lore master waiting you know how they get robots radio presents the dungeons and dragons lore cast the best way for everyone from experienced dungeon masters to those curious about D&D to learn more about the worlds, creatures, and lore of Dungeons and Dragons. Hello and welcome to the Dungeons and Dragons Lorecast. My name is Sergio. I will be your lore master for the evening. Well, we are barreling towards Planescape. The early access on D&D Beyond is already open. If you ordered the digital and physical bundle, then you can already check out the digital version on D&D Beyond. And it's uh, it's something. It's, it's, it's good. It's got its flaws. We'll have a full review of it uh, in next week's episode. Uh, this week, however, we are finishing up our planes discussion as we get as we get uh, ready for Planescape 5e and this week we are covering the planes of chaos there are five different planes of chaos we'll be uh, covering four of them in this episode and the final one in the patron plus installment so let's go ahead and just get started there are many ways to go amiss on the great ring but nowhere are the paths of the planes naughtier than in the plains of chaos. From lofty Olympus to the stinking depths of the abyss, chaos reigns. So like I said, five planes uh, whose alignment all skews toward chaos. We've got the abyss. We've got Arborea. We've got Pandemonium. We've got Isgard. And finally, Limbo. And we will discuss the first, like I said, the first four in this episode, and we'll cover Limbo in the Patron Plus. So there's no arguing that among the Outer Plains, the chaos side of the Great Ring draws the greatest number of adventurers. I mean, after all, the realms of law tend to keep a tighter rein on things, so the powers there are usually aware of everyone who travels through their realms. But on the other hand, powers on the chaos side usually don't bother to be so vigilant. And even if they were, they couldn't provide much of a unified front the chaotic nature of their relationships with neighboring powers make it difficult for or can make it difficult for their agents to um, to take effective action against uh, anyone uh, coming in uh, and especially you know if, if the action if the situation's occurring outside of their own realm so as a result adventurers come and go on the chaos planes 
relatively freely. But the untamed nature of the Chaos Plains means that, yeah, while more folk come here to adventure, more of them fall prey to the dangers. And few accomplish anything of multiversal significance. So in the end, it kind of all balances out. Okay, so before we get into the planes themselves, I want to talk about a couple of roaming powers. So by and large, being beings native to the outer planes tend to identify with a particular plane. You know, and so you've got um like Isgard, you've got powers that identify with Isgard. But that doesn't mean, however, that some don't wander through neighboring planes. But if you, you know, if you had to bet on a certain creature, where a certain creature would be at a certain time, odds are it'd be on its on its home plane. But not every power has such a clear home plane distinction. Like the Null God, Gorlick, who's declined so much, actually, that he doesn't even have uh, enough power to maintain a realm anymore. And this steady decline in power is due to the continual erosion of worshippers to the us- uh, usurper god, uh, the demon god, Yignalku. These days, Gorlick still has demigod status, at least for now, uh, but he's little more than, and I did not realize this was a thing, but he is little more than a werehyadon. So um, a hyenadon, uh, who's also a, a person who becomes, in, like you know, has lycanthropy, uh, didn't realize that was a thing, and it's awesome. So, uh, in fact, any knoll who encounters Gorlick is automatically turned into a hyena don and then joins his entourage or pack, uh, and it's prowling through the lower plains. And another one of these kind of roaming powers is the Seely Court. Uh, just as woodlands on prime material worlds often have a magical heart in which fairy folk hide, so are there secret hearts hidden away in various woodlands of the Beastlands, as well as Aborea and Isgard. So the Seely Court travels among these magical bowers at the whim of its queen. It is home of the Sylvan deities. It is a place that exists among the Outer Plains, um, usually uh, between the aforementioned three, but can also be found in others at times. And it usually manifests as a calm woodland with many glades sparkling with moonlit dew in endless twilight. When its queen, Titania, is in a rage, however, the woodlands change its face, shaking with storms that send most fairy folk cowering. Titania is the primary power, but there are five other powers that form her inner court. This queen is chaotic in nature herself, though she provides a point of some stability for those in her court. You know, and there's a lot of cool and fun information about the Seelie Court. Uh, we will keep all that safe for now until we give it its own episode because it's it's a lot of cool stuff. So for now, let's just go ahead and dive into the Plains of Chaos, starting with the Abyss. Ah, the infinite wonders of the Abyss. If there's anything you don't like, you'll find it here. Tanari Sane. So infinite in evil, cruelty, and blood war. The abyss stands unequaled among the plains as a place where betrayal, treachery, and murder are the approved ways to greet hapless travelers. All purity is corrupted here, and all dreams die. 
the despairing lower ranks are at the mercy of the greater fiends and the higher ups have no mercy if it talks the demons or tonnery cheat it and if it moves they kill it so if uh if you're relatively new to the show or um relatively new to D&D lore uh I'll be using demons and tonnery uh interchangeably uh this goes back to the uh AD&D days where there was um, a satanic panic involving D&D. And so the company who uh, ran the show at the time, TSR, decided, you know, we're going to take demons and devils out and we're going to put Tanari and Batezu in. Uh, it's, it, they're the same thing. They just, they're not called by the names that that would, that sort of were, that were freaking people out, I guess. Uh, so like I said, demons are Tanari. Quick history lesson. Uh, in the abyss, you're either quick or you're dead. So you better be ready. In order to reach the abyss, there's a single gateway town on the outlands called Plaguemort, uh, in addition to wandering portals and sigil that lead to the various layers. Some are victims. Some of those who you know get to the abyss are victims of their own meddling as they sometimes accidentally open gateways to the abyss. And when travelers stumble into the abyss by accident, they're almost always destroyed by contact with forces they don't understand and can't control these unfortunate souls rarely find their way out again and spend their last few brief days wandering hiding and fighting until finally they're too worn out to continue others are the victims of those who have made bargains with the tanari their lives sacrificed to the fiends they also don't last very long they become food to all the lesser demons worse though are the accidental vic- worse than the accidental victims or bargain makers are those fools who believe they can outmaneuver, outthink, or outfight the fiends of the abyss. Arrogant mages usually find they're lucky at first. Abyssal lords assigned a quasit to them. That the quasit's like an imp-like demon, like a little you know little 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 demon guy, uh, to serve the mage until the mage's death. At this point, the poor mages find themselves carried off to the abyss by their former servants. Others go to the source of evil, like lemmings to the sea. These demented souls go into the abyss willingly to strike a bargain with the tonnery. So if you somehow find yourself in the abyss, how does one find their way out? Well, there are paths leading from one layer to another, but they are without order or pattern. And some even require like leaping from a gorge or cliff while others require uh, entering a cave or a cavern or some other enclosed space. The best way to leave, uh, you know, without having to jump off a cliff or, or, or crawl through a cave is to go through Broken Reach, which is a fortress on the first layer of the abyss called the Plain of Infinite Portals. One could make a quick escape by taking the boat on the river Styx, but that leads to the other lower planes, which means sailing down the Styx makes a bad journey even worse. So the Tanari, really quickly, uh, they are a mutable race, ever-changing to become more powerful. Uh, perhaps only one in a thousand mains. Mains are... Demons formed when a chaotic evil soul dies and is sent to the abyss. They are pretty much the cannon fodder of the abyss. They're they're 
They're what the demons throw at the blood war with impunity, uh, and they are below all other tonnery. So, you know, only one in a thousand mains becomes a dretch, which is, you know, the pretty much the least powerful of demon kind, but not, but still above main. And then only one of a thousand dretches becomes an Armonite. So demons are nothing if not numerous, you know, so you think that go, oh, the, the odds aren't great. Sure. But one in a thousand is still pretty good odds when it comes to the almost infinite amount of demons. <laughs> Uh, so in time, a truly vile fiend can hope to transform itself into a lesser or a greater or then even a true tonnery and then have dreams of even maybe becoming a lord, a demon lord. As uh, Demogorgon and others prove, these lords may advance themselves to become powers, lords of entire layers and even worshipped on the prime material plane. You know, the tonnery transform themselves into ever more powerful forms like snakes shedding their skins. And while it takes long eons of constant corruption, betrayal and destruction, surviving both victories and bloody defeats in the battles of the blood war, you know, it's, they have, they have the one, they have, like I said, they have the numbers and they have the time. They rule almost all layers of the abyss and the varieties of demons are more than any mortal can hope to list. So, in terms of layers, not even the governors have been able to count the layers of the abyss, though it's not for lack of trying. No one knows whether there's an infinite number of layers or whether most of them are just so deadly that not even powers call them home. So, the current count is 679, with 141 of them, uh, you know, being able to be habitat, you know, you can live there, you know, uh, but the, the number of each layer refers to the number in which the layer was discovered and recorded in the sigil records by the governors. And it's there's not any kind of relationship between the layers themselves. There, um, there are some layers that are known only by reputation. Their entrances on the plane and infinite portals have long since been forever sealed. These are called the lost planes of the abyss, sealed zones where each summon gate only loops back into itself, no matter how powerful the summoner. Many abyssal lords dread themselves or dread finding themselves in one of these pocket planes because they're helpless until someone releases them. Many other lords, of course, are struggling and paying a bloody price to find out how the secret of how to trap their enemies there. So, like I said, there are. 679 layers we are going to discuss each and every one of them um actually no we're just going to we're going to go through like a handful of them right now um but uh, as we move forward with uh the next year of the lore cast you know we're going to have more of a presence on twitch more of a presence on tiktok uh it seems like uh some of these layers you know then there's some some of these layers have a ton of information on them in fact we had a um we had an entire uh, Patron Plus installment on the Gaping Maw, which is Demogorgon's lair. But, you know, a lot of these layers, you know, just small bits of information would be perfect for, you know, a two to three minute TikTok. So keep uh, keep your eyes peeled for that. So uh, some, some of these other layers, though, uh, one is called the Realm of a Million Eyes. Uh, it's one of the worst abyssal realms. It's the sixth layer. 
and it is home of the Great Mother, ruler of the Beholder Pantheon. Every form of evil beholder and beholder kin dwells here, preying on one another and any other demon foolish to wander into the crossfire. The seventh layer of the abyss, also known as the Phantom Plane, has long been sealed against intruders. Weary of the blood war and far from the front, Sesenik is one of the few Tanari who spends little time concerned with it, concerned with the blood war. And so the gates to this plane uh, more often are going to be sealed. You've got Blood Tor. This is the site of a Beatazu incursion into the abyss, one of the greatest successes early in the blood war. The 13th layer is now the realm of Vishaba, the maid of misfortune, and her realm contains both the black stags that are her totem, as well as bad luck that haunts visitors to the realm. The 66th layer, probably one of the most famous uh, of the abyss, or infamous of the abyss, is Loth's Web, aka the Demon Web Pits. It is a convoluted plane that connects to the prime material world where the spider queen has worshippers. The plane folds in upon itself so that it resembles a great web. Four strands of tunnels wind through an infinite mist, each strand looping in a circle and each strand passing somehow both over and under each of the others. Each strand is strong with gates into the plains where Loth is strongest, and her palace is said to be in a mobile iron fortress, perpetually crawling across her planar web. There is Sulfanarum, the thir- 303rd layer. I-, I wanted to say 303rd. Uh, the 303rd layer is a place where the Tanari come to relax and smoke a pipe of dried flesh or dung or whatever whatever it is they smoke uh this foul stuff clogs the air making planners and pilgrims alike wheeze and ache with each breath the stench is almost unbearable though it doesn't bother the demons the fires are constantly burning pouring smoke and filth into this into the skies uh and but you you wouldn't know that based on how the demons how the tana react they it, they're, they love it. Uh, these fires are weak, though, just enough to light a pipe or to start incense smoking. Uh, the Prison of the Mad God. This is the 586th layer of the abyss. And this is actually, uh, we touched on this in our Fandelver uh, episode um, as we discussed um, the uh, Illithid God, uh, Ilsonsin. So this layer serves as nothing more than a prison of Denkarazin, the mad god of the Duggar. It is a swirling vortex of air and gas with rings of whirling rocks flying about a central point. Denkarazin is magically bound to a stone thrown at the center of the storm after being cursed and banished by Ilsensin, the power of the Illithids. The Mad God cannot be freed by anything less than a greater power, and he is permanently insane and tormented by illusions of the things he fears most. And finally, uh, the Caverns of the Skull. Kali rules a place of perpetual blood sacrifice and suffering. 
The plane is home to bloodthirsty Zorn and other horrendous creatures, and the petitioners constantly slaughter one another only to be reborn to kill again. Likewise, the Lair's Caverns are constantly being created and destroyed, and only the goddess knows what tunnels will be sealed up next. The caverns are catalogued as catalogued as the 643rd layer of the abyss. So moving on to Aborea. I'd rather come home without my shield than on it. That's from Xenophon of the Sensates. So larger than life and as quick as a change of heart, Arborea, the place of violent moods and deep affections, of whim backed by iron and of passions that blaze brightly until they burn out. It's true that most of the creatures of Arborea are good-natured and that the powers of the plane are dedicated to fighting evil, but the reckless emotions of the petitioners can break loose with devastating consequences. Rage is as common and as honored as joy here in Aborea. The plane itself is determined to remain wild and pure. Every glade and stream is inhabited by nature spirits who don't take kindly to any kind of infringement, so one must tread lightly. Arsonists, woodcutters, those who hunt for sport, uh, and even those who simply blaze a trail in you know untamed wilderness are often the target of lethal attacks by the predators of the ancient woods. Arborea is also known as the breadbasket of the outer plains, supplying grains, vegetables, and even stranger nourishment like ram's blood, oak, sap wine, you know, all the all the good stuff, all the stuff that you would find like at Trader Shows or something, uh, to the many folk in Sigil. Uh, but many people shopping in Sigil are gullible, and lots of merchants hawk their goods as Arborean, even though it's just some cabbage that was carted in from the outlands. Oh, Outlands cabbage. You know what? I don't care what anyone I, I enjoy a good a good Outlands cabbage every now and then. So uh the powers in Aborea. Uh long ago the lairs of Aborea were the province of the powers of the Titans and the Giants, who are now exiled to Carcery in Isgard. Two great pantheons moved into town and threw the old lot out. The first to arrive were the deities of the elves. And under Corallon Larathion, they challenged the giants and took the plane in a titanic battle. The giants fled to the lands of Isgard and that the elves had then had abandoned, and but one of the giants remained. Iolanius, the gentle goddess of good aligned giants, stayed at the hearthside where her bro- when her brothers went to war. The glory seeking elven gods didn't toss her out when they drove out the others, but you know, that's, even though she's still there, they don't really respect her too much either. The Olympians were later arrivals, stormy, violent, and lusty. Uh, they were driven half mad for power when they threw the greater Titans, their forefathers, off Mount Olympus and into the prison plain of Kasari. They've been producing half powers and new gods ever since, which, uh, you know, is the bad news, but they've also been opening conduits to many prime material worlds, which is good news. Oh, and about that opening quote for Aborea, but the, you know, the sensate, uh, Xenophon, the sensate, 
So uh, the Society of Sensations, and and we briefly talked about them in our in the original Planescape episode when we talked about the factions. Um, so the Society of Sensations, of whom the members are known as Sensates, uh, have more of a presence here than most of the other factions have, mostly because Arborea is just is too beautiful and too perfect for the Sensates to stay away. Yeah, we briefly touched on them uh, in the Planescape episode and then went into more detail in the Patron Plus installment for episode 162. So Sensates believe that accumulating uh, experiential knowledge through the senses is the only way to achieve enlightenment. So the layers. Uh, the first layer of Aborea contains both Arvandor and Olympus, uh, the two realms the entire plane is known for. And so, you know, one might think the realms are as close as two alehouses in Sigil, uh, the way they're always kind of lumped in together. But the fact is they're separated by hundreds of miles of unclaimed wilderness. And they lay, it's the, the layer itself is slightly convex so that both Olympus and Arvandor both occupy the highest pinnacles of land within their realms. So let's talk about Arvandor really quick. Uh, many's the time someone in Sigil sings the praises of Unsullied of Arvandor, the high forest, the land of the elves, a pure forest untouched by civilization. But don't be fooled. The realm has been tamed, but what an elf considers tame, pleasant and proper, ain't the same as what a city dweller would expect. Uh, there are almost no towns in Arvandor, only favored glades, groves, and trees. Grandfather Oak is almost as large as the town, but no cager would mistake it for a true city. It and other similarly inhabited tree towns, such as the Pale Tree, don't produce smoke, don't pack crowds, and don't smell like sewers. Grandfather Oak is ruled by an ancient treant named, and this name is fantastic, moss, moss Among His Roots, Wind in His Leaves. So you had a treant, and this treant's name is Moss Among His Roots, Wind in His Leaves. Uh, he is, uh, they are unusually aged, even for their kind, with cracked bark, yellow leaves, split and patched limbs, and just one single remaining arm. This appearance leads many to speculate they're dying, but his spirit is as strong as ever. Uh, one locale, once an autumn grove of silver-stemmed trees, is known as Loth's Grove, and is now a silent place of dead trees, blackened stumps, and uprooted giants. The spring at its center, long ago the site of merriment, or at least reflection, is now a fouled trickle of muddy sludge. All animals avoid it, except for spiders, which grow to such size that they must be hunted down from time to time. Banshees are also extremely common in the woods where Loth's followers were once slaughtered by the hundreds. And finally, the sparkling sea that laps the borders of the great elven realms also contains the gates to the second layer in a crystal city beneath the waves. And the other huge realm for on this layer is Olympus. Olympus isn't a place to hold back anger or tears. Rage and grief alike ring from the mountaintops. Celebrate passion, lust, and anger. Vent heroic appetites. All or nothing, glory or disgrace. Prince or exile. 
return with your shield or on it, but don't return in shame. Don't fade into the background. Everyone's life is an epic and even, you know, the lowliest of the low uh, can become a hero, but beware the jealousy of the powers. Uh, Olympus is obviously home to the Greek pantheon, you know, from A to Z, Athena to Zeus. Uh, they tend to be short-tempered, lusty. I've said the word lust and lusty more times in this episode than I think I've maybe said the entire uh, D&D lore cast history. Uh, and they're, they like they like the party. Uh, they're more chaotic than any other Patreon, except for maybe the Norse. Uh, the great towns of this realm are Arkanos, uh, Thalassia, and Polyceptalon. So Arkanos is the largest of the three and located on a peninsula at the mouth of a broad river. It's widely known for its Amazonian militia, a body of women warriors who dedicate their lives to the pursuit of martial arts. Never seen uh, an Amazon an Amazonian um, described like <laughs> dedicating their pers- their lives to the pursuit of martial arts. It's like, do hey, you know Wonder Woman? Like, oh, that's the one who's like really into karate, right? Thalassia uh, is a seaside town of fisher folk perched on steep sunny hills. Uh, from time to time, though, it's troubled by monsters from the sea. Uh, these terrible, gigantic octopi, sea serpents, beguiling sirens, many-headed hydra, and sorcerous hags. So you know, it's you want you want a seaside view. You got to deal with the many-headed hydra, unfortunately. Uh, Polyketalon is a town of philosophers and scholars who keep people enslaved to attend to the crass demands of the body while they ponder the nature of the planes and the powers. Doesn't sound like a vibe at all. Sounds like, um, sounds like Polycaptalon might be first on, on the hit list for, uh, for some good Nate, you know, good aligned adventurers. Uh, additionally, there are other towns like Thrasos, which is a cosmopolitan cosmopolitan burg modeled after a town on one of the Greek powers' uh, favorite prime material worlds. So, you know, you can make it look like uh, probably like New York or London or Los Angeles. Um, here, it's believed trade breeds peace and travel broadens the mind. The ruler is a democratically elected male and is chosen every year, but the real power behind this town is a woman named Helena Toliopoulos, who decides the winner beforehand and a woe to whoever does not drop out afterwards. The second layer of Arborea is Osa to the Olympians, but it has been called many names, uh, has as many names as the ocean. It's been called Aqualore by the elves, the endless rivers by the Selkies, and the green or the abiding sea by the creatures of Amunthus. There are tales about huge funnel-like maelstroms that lead directly back to Thalassia in an unending circle. But unlike most of the waters on this plain, the seas of Osa are shallow for the most part, no more than you know three feet or so, uh, or a meter, over most most of the realm. Great chasms open up in random places here, and the chaotic good sea powers make their domain in this place. One realm within Osa is Kaleto. uh, It's becalmed and peaceful, or strong and violent. The waters of this realm always reflect the mood of its power. 
Usually sunny, it can change in an instant. Quick to anger, quick to forgive. And of course, the power behind this is Poseidon, who rarely leaves his realm, and even more rarely leaves the plain of Osa altogether. Haleto is remarkably uh, habitable for most travelers, those who can breathe water anyway, uh, and is a sparkling realm of undersea wonders. The waters are warm, the creatures friendly, the petitioner is open and generous. The waters, however, are deeper than those three-foot, one-meter shallows that are on most of Osa, you know, ranging from the three feet all the way to 300 feet deep with two great trenches that reach even deeper. Rumors say that all the seawater within the temples of Poseidon is transformed into holy water, but you know, that's that's a legend, that's a rumor, and that's probably as likely as finding a trustworthy Tanari. Others claim that the waters of Coleto and elsewhere have a more direct, you know, healthy effect. Some waters are said to regenerate lost limbs, restore vigor, cure diseases, lift curses, or even restore lost life energy. Most of these tales are considered pure lies or rot. Uh, in the uh, planescape parlance. Still, though, the deeper powers or the deeper waters might have real power. That's a pretty dope story hook, at least in my opinion. And the third layer that we are going to discuss is Pelion. The third layer is a dusty place of blowing white sand, which elves call Mithardir, which translates appropriately enough, to white dust. Pelion is temperate in most of its domains, but dust covers everything. Both Greek and Elven pantheons have their own legends concerning other powers that once dwelt in these regions. On Mount Olympus, the legends tell Pelion was once the realm of Ptah and all the Egyptian powers, but as their followers faded away and the number of petitioners dwindled, the realm suffered and finally withered away. The stories of the Seldarin say that it was the powers of the animals, lords of the beast cults, that once ruled all of Pelion, but that as the animal lords slowly lost the most vital parts of their realms to the beast lands, they shifted their domains across the borders until nothing but these bad lands remained in Pelion. Whichever tale holds the truth, the powers are now gone, but their realms and the treasures that remain buried beneath the dust remain. Only one power is known to make her home here, Nephithus, the Egyptian goddess of wealth and the dead. And the most interesting locale here, at least in my opinion, is Amunthus. Mysterious, empty, wind-blown and dusty, the deserts of Amunthus are avoided by all but the greediest of travelers. The ageless and aged realms haunt a traveler with the feeling that something always seems to be lurking nearby, as if an ambush is always waiting around the next corner. The dunes travel swiftly, parting from time to time to reveal priceless golden idols or tombs long forgotten. Amunthus is a realm devoted to the past, to memory and the persistence of gods beyond their time. But the blowing sands of the third layer are actually the vestiges of a more vital realm. Few know it, 
but Amunthus is the Titan's graveyard, a site they travel to when they feel death approaching. The eldest Titans can be huge beyond comprehension, built on a scale that matches the peaks and forests of the first layer of Aborea. Some of these corpses have been hollowed out, tanned, reinforced, and transformed into shelters from the layer's dusty winds. So you're, you're telling me people are living inside a Titan skeleton? That's... Yeah, sign me up. Where, where, where do I just take my money and let me do this? Uh, I. We'll we'll discuss more. In the, we'll just, you know we'll discuss it with the Planescape episode. I've got my my thoughts on on Planescape five E, and and how it correlates to everything you know five E related, and we'll just and I don't want to get into it now. Right now, let's just go to the middle of the show. Let's talk some. Uh, let's thank some patrons. Let's thank some listeners. Talk some homebrew and, and get into the news. Hey there, Dungeon Masters! Ever wished for a tool to help design your worlds and campaigns? Introducing Epic World Builder, the app that turns those dreams into reality. Craft intricate dungeons populated with creatures from the abyss, or cities with secrets hidden around every corner. Join a community of dreamers and world builders sharing and exploring each other's creations. Create your free campaign today with EpicWorldBuilder.com. EpicWorldBuilder.com, where your world comes to life. Welcome to the middle of the show. Middle of the show is where kind of we do our housekeeping stuff. And um, first and foremost, we want to thank all of our patrons and all of our listeners. Thank you so much for all the love and support. If you want to go to patreon.com slash D&D Lorecast and support the show in that way, uh, you can absolutely do so. We have tiers from five bucks all the way to 75. You get uh, ad-free early episodes. You get bonus content. You get merchandise. You get uh, D&D sessions. Uh, DM'd by myself. Lots of cool stuff available there. If you want to support the show in other ways, you can follow us on all the social medias. Pretty much everywhere we are at DND Lorecast. Um, all your micro messaging services like X, and I'm never going to get used to calling it that. Uh, Threads, Mastodon, Blue Sky, all that. Uh, Instagram, TikTok, Twitch, pretty much everywhere we are at DND Lorecast. Uh, interact with us there, follow us, um, chat with us. You know, um, you know, much like uh, most people in today's society, I'm constantly on my phone and always checking that. Uh, we have a Discord. We have a Discord that you can talk to with the rest of the community. Uh, it's so much fun. It's always something going on. Always someone telling a story about the, the latest uh, session or asking advice for a, a character that they want to build or just, you know, posting memes. It's a lot of fun. Uh, the community that we have uh, built and fostered here is is my proudest accomplishment and in, in all of this you know like it's being able to um, create a safe place for people to to join together and talk D&D and and share and, and our love for that is has been awesome and in the show notes you will find a link to the latest unearth arcana uh D&D kind of slipped this one just kind of just snuck it in uh without really announcing it Kind of just silent, silently dropped it, uh, but it's it's a doozy. It's about twenty five pages long. It um it has a lot to do with spells, fixes a lot of spells in my opinion, uh, and also gives you playtest rules for how um to build a stronghold. Essentially, they, they describe it as a bastion, um, but it's essentially like you know like a like a home base, like a headquarters. Gives you rules to how to for how to do that, which is something that I have been wanting 
so much in this edition of 5e uh you know having your own castle gray skull uh is is what every what every nerd would want right that's that's how i feel like i said there's a link to that uh in the show notes uh additionally in the middle of the shows where we also uh go into some homebrew fun I was at DMs Guild. I was at the uh, DMsGuild.com, the Dungeon Masters Guild, seeing what kind of new stuff uh, we had. And I immediately was, my eyes were drawn to Vecna's Book of Vile Darkness. Uh, this comes from a, a, a litany of folks, um, but it is $19.99 for the PDF. However, it is seems like it's absolutely 100% worth it. Vecna's original manuscript has finally been unearthed. Its whispered secrets worm its way into the unwitting underground organization, hell-bent on putting a stop to the Lich King once and for all. Will they succeed in their efforts, or will their hubris become their undoing? That is for you and the players to decide. So inside, you will find 13 new subclasses. Become the monster to fight the monsters, or blur the line between darkness and light. You have six accursed lineages, four backgrounds, and a slew of new feats. Uh, you have 12 vile curses with progression over time and nuanced ways of finding relief. Uh, 30 new dangerous denizens and stat, stat blocks for each subclass. New spell, uh, uh, new spells, new magic items. The entire thing looks dope AF, and I can't recommend it enough. Um so yeah, prepare to embark on an epic journey where the boundaries between heroism and villainy blur and morality is but a fragile thread. In this immersive guide, you will unlock the secrets of a multiverse where the darkest corners hold the keys to unimaginable power. Uh, definitely worth it. This is the type of thing that, you know, when you when you tell people about homebrew, about D&D, like, you know, if someone's new to D&D in general and you tell them like, oh yeah, there's a whole like homebrew community that they they write and create their own stuff to use in the game. This is something that you could hold up like as a shining example of what is, you know, what is possible with that. So definitely check it out. There's a link in the show notes to that. Uh, and before we get back to the Planes of Chaos, just really quickly, I uh, want to give everyone a quick update on the show. Um, I know this episode was a couple of days late. Um, as I'm, you know, as of a couple of weeks ago, you know, Mary announced that um, she unfortunately wouldn't be able to continue the the week to week duties, uh, you know, of, of being on the show. And so I've been trying to figure out like what what I want to do with it. And I'm, I'm still trying to figure out like time wise, if I'm able to um, to still do weekly episodes or if I'm going to do uh, albeit maybe shorter, you know, maybe, you know, 30 to 45 minute long episodes. Or if I'm going to do, you know, uh, two episodes a month or three episodes a month or, you know, what, you know, what, you know, what the options are, you know, what I have time for. Um, and so I'm going to be taking a little bit of time to figure that out. Uh, so next week we'll have our first impressions on Planescape 5th edition. And the two weeks after that, I will be releasing uh, or re-releasing some bonus episodes that were Patreon exclusives uh, last year. Uh, those will be the episodes that we release to the on the general feed. Uh, we'll have a, the Zastam episode that we recorded last year, as well as you know because it's spooky season, a Baphomet episode, uh, and then we'll finish off the the month with a, a spooky homebrew patron roundtable, 
And then moving into November, like I said, I'm trying to figure out exactly, um, you know, what the plan is, you know, what, what is possible, what, you know, what is likely and, um, much like, you know, what, which was a big reason why like Mary decided to step down. She wasn't, she wasn't comfortable giving, uh, the community, you know, subpar, um, content. And that I feel the exact same way. So I, you know, I want to continue doing the show, but I also don't want to, uh, I don't want to half-ass it. I want to make sure that the content I do provide is worth it. And that I'm able to provide that on a consistent basis. Um, as far as the Patreon goes, uh, the Patreon will continue to get a bonus episode every month, continue to get two Patreon Plus installments every month, regardless of, you know, what, you know, what is done for the general feed. So if you have any questions or if you have any, any um, concerns or any, um, any ideas, you know, if, would you want, you know, two long episodes every month? Would you want four, uh, you know, two hour long episodes every month or two hour and a half long episodes every month? Or would you want, you know, maybe, uh, you know, four, um, 45 minute long episodes, you know, what, you know, let me know what, uh, what, as a, as listeners, what you would be, what you would uh, enjoy. And I'll try to accommodate as much as possible. With that being said, let's jump back into the planes of chaos. Welcome back from the middle of the show. We have got two planes of chaos down and we've got two more to go. We've got Isgard and Pandemonium. Uh, like I said, we'll have Limbo in the Patreon Plus installment if you're interested in listening to that as well as supporting the show in that particular way. You can go to patreon.com slash lorecast. So, Isgard, it's a perfect day to die, just like yesterday and the day before. That is a quote from Hranful. That's a... Hranful. Hranful. The bold, a Isgardian petitioner. So Isgard's plane, um, they're playing on an epic scale, soaring mountains deep towards dark caverns that hide the secret forges of the dwarves. A biting wind always blows at a hero's back, and many of the petitioners are heroes who have been slain in battle a thousand times. So it's as epic as it can be, right? From the freezing fords and many scattered settlements to the sacred groves of Al uh, Alpheim's elves, Isgard's terrain is sparsely settled by petitioners and planers who want to triumph on their own. If they fail, they'll do it on their own too. But when they band together, few can stop them. But the proud Isgardians only join forces in an, in an emergency because most of them are stubborn jerks and they consider charity to be an insult but here's what they say Isgard is where anyone can make a name a town's founded just by pulling long ships up onto shore and turning the masts and ribs into long hauls and Isgard someone can wrestle with the proxies of the powers and even win and a place where petitioners die each day and then get up for a hearty breakfast anything is possible Isgard is a plane of raw, unsheltered living and sharp seasons. Winter's a time of darkness and bitter, bitter, killing cold. Summer nights bring mild breezes and the midnight sun. 
light comes from the burning underside of the great earthbergs. And someone might think that uh, that the way these colossal rivers of earth rotate, create night and day. But that's not so. More than anything else, the whims of the powers determine when night and day fall. Thus, the dead of winter is a time of constant darkness in most realms, despite the fact that the underside of a burning earthberg may shine not too far away in the void. Why the Asgardian powers would want to imitate a uh, prime plain season is a mystery for only the governors to ponder. Isgard's enormous rivers of earth usually float serenely by another without collisions, but the earthberg's ceaseless motion makes collisions and grinding fusions inevitable. So when earthbergs do collide, the resulting quakes can shake both the earthbergs for long minutes before they separate. The collision is slow, the earthbergs shudder and groan for several days, though these slow collisions are hardly noticeable. And earthquakes rarely kill. You know, it's like a basically a deck saving throw uh, to avoid like slight damage. So Isgard consists of three layers, which is Isgard itself, Mespelheim, and Nita Velier. All three consist of these earthbergs burning on one side, but the earthbergs arc more closely together in the third in the third uh, layer in Nita Velier. So let's talk a little bit about. Um, Isgard, the layer itself. Isgard is the first layer of the plane named after it, and it's certainly the best known and most widely inhabited. It's the layer of the largest and most important realms, uh, dotted with dozens of huge halls, smoking battlefields, hilly terrain leading down to the cold seas. And at night, the skies are filled with the earthbergs, burning ribbons of earth that glow like rivers of lava. Uh, one of the most um, popular and populated um, realms that we mentioned earlier, Alfheim. It's um, a brilliant sunlit region that's populated primarily by the spirits of elves who worship Frey and Freya. Alfheim seems to be infused with so much light and joy that the entire realm sometimes feels like it's suspended in midair, ready to be carried away by a puff of breeze. But it's a fair land, right enough, a joy to visit. Though not for everyone, elven hospitality is only extended to a few. And while dwarves and gnomes aren't welcome in Alfheim, though they are regarded neutrally by Frey and the other, uh, the elves that, who do live here do everything possible to make dwarves and gnomes feel uncomfortable and unwelcome. Elves gonna elf. I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. Uh, <laughs> Alfheim's lands are wild, beautiful, untouched by civilization. Uh, it's got deer, reindeer, caribou. Uh, those are plentiful. Uh, its streams, inlets, and sunny hills are likewise bountiful. And some say that Alfheim was once a part of Arvandor and gradually slid over into Isgard as its people grew more concerned with honor and survival. The elves are friendly, unless, of course, like I said, you are a dwarf or a gnome. Um, but like the sensates, they care little for anything but play and the enjoyment of nature. So all summer long, the Alfheim elves welcome visitors, heaping them with gifts. Uh, this includes stuff like elven chainmail, elven cloaks and boots are common gifts uh, for those who do the elves a great favor. All the while extracting every tale someone is willing to share. Uh, the festival finishes with the great leaf fall fest and with the first snows the land goes dead. 
That's because winter is hard in Alfheim. A sensate poet named Hugi Spearbearer, love that name, or maids pronounced Huggy. I'm going to pronounce it Huggy Spearbearer. <laughs> Once said that all of Alfheim's, all of Alfheim hibernates in the winter, and that's as close to the truth as you as you could get. Uh, the elves retreat to their clans and their underhill homes for the winter. These glittering caverns are magically sealed against intruders. So skiing through Alpine in winter seems much like visiting a house when its owners are away. Uh, someone might do it if they're planning to, you know, playing the cross trade, but otherwise there's little point. Another one of the most famous realms in Isgard, and one that you've probably already heard of through some other media, is Asgard. All the gods of uh, the Norse mythology dwell in Asgard, including Odin, Baldur, uh, Loki, Thor. Uh, Loki often, you know, um, has got a little bolt hole, it's called, in Pandemonium. Um and it's 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 mentioned that Loki's actually saved, often saved the others, but usually it's because of some trouble that he made. So he usually has to like, you know, scamper off the pandemonium. Uh, but the rest of the powers often travel the realm in disguise or go to Jutenheim to pit themselves against the giants when they crave adventure. Frey and Freya also live here part of the year as part of a treaty to guarantee peace between the Aesir and the Vanir. And that is just in, in Norse mythology, that's uh, essentially two groups of deities um, that, you know, it's a conflict. They are often in conflict. You know, you got two groups of anything. They're probably going to end up fighting at some point. So Asgard is a cold realm with seasons that swing to extremes. The land is surrounded by a solid stone wall, 40 feet thick and 80 feet high, which is about uh, 12 meters and 24 meters respectively. Uh, several gates lead out from Asgard into the surrounding countryside, and its largest river, the Iving River, never ices over and forms part of the boundary between Asgard and Jotunheim. In fact, it can't freeze, even though even through the use of magic, and its water rem remains warm all year round, which is at a heated pool, essentially, that's naturally heated. I like it. Asgard doesn't have towns, only halls built on numerous huge estates. The halls of the Aesir are huge, splendid affairs, gold, silver mansions that serve as the home of powers only rarely. More often, they are the site of feasting or harvest festivals or weddings or other celebrations of the petitioners and planars that live in the surrounding estates. The halls themselves often cover several acres but even so, the carousing often spills out onto the fields surrounding them. You've got uh, Fenselir, which is the mansion of Frigga, who is Odin's wife. It is clean, well-organized, tall, high up in the mountains, as befits the sky goddess. Uh, Frigga actually spends little time here, and her only her most devoted worshippers make the pilgrimage up to those heights. Uh, Fenselir is notably less inclined to violence than the other halls, so keep that in mind if you're not looking to get into a into a scuffle. Uh, Thor and Sif's estate is called Thrudheim. Uh, significant, it's a significant region of Asgard, prone to violent storms, floods, and landslides. Thor's halls, uh, Th Thor's hall here is named Bilskanir, 
though fewer visit it than the others. The hall is an oak and iron shod palace. Then you've got, of course, Valhalla, the Hall of the Slain. Uh, it is the most important of all the halls. It is the famed council hall of Odin, where the spirits of the greatest heroes dwell. These bloods are uh, are the Einherir, who fated to fight the giants at Ragnarok, the twilight of the gods. Valhalla is immense and has lodging and dining space for several hundred thousand warriors at once. The roof is made of shields and the rafters and walls are built from spears. It has 540 doors for the Einherir to pass through when entering or leaving. And remember, we talked about the Einherir when we discussed uh, Big B's glory of the giants. Uh, so definitely check our episode on that if you want more information on them. And the most peculiar part about Asgard is you know, it draws, you know, battle mad petitioners the same way that Sigil would draw adventurers. And, you know, there's a reason for this because anyone who dies heroically in Asgard, even a PC, is reborn the following day. The Norse powers and the Valkyries honor brave warriors and those that are slain in valiant situations wake the next morning in Valhalla. There's two conditions, though. It's not that simple. First, You've got to die heroically. You can't just die in battle. You've got to hew your way through a horde of foes, defending your comrades and shouting battle cries with his last breath. You've got to take on the biggest, meanest, most powerful creature on the battlefield and deliver a death blow while his life's blood pours onto the plain. A second or third or fourth life has got to be earned. And second, the chance that another life is a gift but it's not a free one. Back in the AD&D days, you would have to make what was known as a resurrection survival check. You would also lose a point of constitution for being brought back from the dead. In 5e days, um, you just use essentially what the, the resurrection spells would would, uh, would entail, which is a negative four penalty on you know various checks and, and, and attack rolls and stuff like that. So that stuff, like, you know, that you still don't get away from that but still you know being able to come back to life without having to use a spell slot or or even a wish you know and, and all those material components that sounds like a pretty good deal and the last realm that we'll discuss for Isgard is Jotunheim uh, giant land the country where the Norse giants live it's harsh and demanding um, all the smaller creatures are hunted by larger ones and this is a place where raw strength, elemental passions, and a sense of arrogant superiority uh, is what this place is known for. You know, abrasive weather and residents combine to make the giant giant's realm one of the least hospitable places among the upper plains. So Jotunheim is a realm of both frost and fire, volcanoes and glaciers, you know, not really hospitable to visitors. The land is made of desolate plains and snow-capped mountains, and only sickly vegetation is able to grow here. You get stunted pines, yellowing mistletoe, and scraggly rags. Uh, Jotunheim is the site of the Well of Mimmer, guarded by Mimmer the Wise. The water from this magical well increases the wisdom of the drinker by one to four points, so by a d4. Mimmer himself answers only to the giants and the Norse powers. All others are slain. His well is sunk in a dark crevice between two hills 
where one of the major routes of Yggdrasil enters the land. Now, the second layer of Isgard, Mospelheim. Named after its best-known realm, Mospelheim is a land that most planars and petitioners have abandoned to the giants. It is a land of fire, the second plane of Isgard, and it's the opposite of the first layer in many respects. Here, the earthbergs' burning flames face upward, making the layer uncomfortable at best and deadly at worst. Even the philosophy of the fire giants is opposed to most creatures of uh, Isgard. It's a hostile land, not fit for man or beast, with surly inhabitants and warm, flat ale, which might be the most egregious of all of its sins. Uh, there ain't much here for petitioners from the first layer, so they tend to just stay away. The layer's earthbergs hang upside down so that the flames are on top, and so sharp volcanic rock is the most common terrain. It cuts into your boots, your sandals, and eventually feet will cut your feet into bloody ribbons. The only silver lining to this whole miserable mess is that the flames cauterize most wounds in- instantly, so at, you know, at least at least you won't bleed to death. So Mespelheim's ground rolls toward a ridge of fiery mountains at the highest point of the Earthberg. This range is called the Serpent's Spine, for the Earthberg does snake through the sky like the World Serpent. The spine is home to most of the clans of the giants, and few of its passes are unguarded. There are dozens of watchtowers and citadels that defend choke points, such as passes and narrows, against other giants. And just below the highest point lies the land of the Golden Mist, one of the few fertile grounds in the entire lair. The giant farmers, I mean and we use the term farmer loosely, are set to cultivate the Golden Mist Valley, growing fireweed, verdaba, and a variety of black edible wood. A few knights who say they've seen the inside of the serpent spine halls say uh, and towers say that the mountains are the homes of all giantish riches. riches. Giantish riches. Giantish riches. And the throne of the gods as well. But I wouldn't. It's uh, I don't know. It's hard to believe that they they would have all that stuff there. So regardless, the only liquid in Muspelheim is the quote unquote water of the Lake of Lead, a dull silvery body of molten metal where giants drown their criminals. How the giants determine which of them are criminals and which are innocent is their business, and it's. Very confusing, to be sure. <laughs> Just leave them to it. Uh, the Spire of Surtur is a towering needle of dark stone supported more by giantish magic than by stonecraft. The Spire is tended by soft, devout giant maidens from Muspelheim and elsewhere, and they're often the targets of bridal raids when fire giants seek to steal brides by force, and the Spire is called the Wedding Spire as often as not. Some giants go recruiting uh, folks from the prime material worlds to help them in their raids. Uh, They usually wind up dead and rarely get the riches promised to them since the giants are quick to blame their volunteers if anything goes wrong. And they say giants are dumb. Sounds sounds like the other folks are the dummies. 
Uh, the third layer of Isgard is Nidavellir, meaning dark home. There are two principal warring realms sparring over territory. There is the eponymous Vidavellir and also Svartisfelheim. Uh, though neither realm is evil, their differences and long-standing feud lead to frequent bloodshed. One might think that in an infinite plane, there'd be no wars over ground, but you'd be wrong. Of course there is, of course. So, uh, Vita Velenir, the realm itself, the only power known to visit it is Muraman Duathal, a minor power among the dwarves. Although they don't rule the Asgardian dwarves, they, he does keep an eye out for them. A few claim that the true power is Hod the Blind, the Norse deity of Smithcraft, who was exiled from Asgard because they foresaw that he was fated to kill Baldur with a spear of mistletoe. But the realm is a deep underground one of Norse dwarvish and gnomish kingdoms, a place of fiery furnaces, ringing anvils, and constant striving for perfection in the crafts of smithworking, runeworking, and magery. Its halls resound with the chanting voices of dwarves and the lilting songs of the gnomes. Though they are rivals, both races are close allies in the ongoing war to fend off the inhabitants of Spartelheim. The dwarves and gnomes of Nidavellir resemble those of the prime spheres, but they have these supernatural talents. You know, they, uh, they're they good fighters, much like their prime counterparts, but the Norse dwarves are also capable mages, reaching as high as, you know, double digits mage level in terms of your, you know, PC character. They belong to two major races, the Durin and the Matsugnar, they, these two differ mostly in the type of magical items that they make and who they give these items to. The Durin create magic items and trade them to the Aesir, to Frost Giants, or to anyone else with equal relish, whereas the Mosognor create non-violent magic items and give them only to the Aesir. Much like the Prime Dwarves, they can be seen as greedy, dour, and materialistic, and talk of little except making more money, losing money, getting revenge on enemies, or making new tools or weapons. But they often hide their wealth as well as coveting the wealth of others. They are neutral toward travelers, though they quickly punish anyone practicing the cross trade, usually by burying them alive. And then the other realm, uh, Spartelheim. So it's Preferring darkness to light, tunnels to the deep forest, this is a land of secrets. Its elves don't share their joys and sorrows with anyone outside the realm, and every cavern seems rife with mysteries. Although constantly and unfairly accused of dark and vile deeds, their spirit never falters, because the petitioners know that what others think doesn't really matter. So in keeping with the realm's love of secrets and mysteries, the power of Svartalheim isn't clear, but may well be Elastre, the Dark Maiden, the goddess of the good-aligned drow. Her music is said to be woven into every fiber of the realm. And while others claim 
that Erevin Ilseer keeps this realm as a retreat from Aborea's stifling goodness, or even that Loki rules in magical disguise, those that know won't tell, and those that tell don't know. So the dwarf, the dwarves believe that the Dark Elf Land is a realm connected to the demon web pits of Loth and the Abyss, and to the underdark domains of the Drow and the Primaterial Plane. Its inhabitants are chaotic, unpredictable, and utterly ruthless in opposing the dwarves and gnomes. So shouldn't be any surprise that, that the dwarves would believe this. And some rumors or some sections are rumored to be constantly shifting across the boundary into pandemonium and even into the abyss. In fact, the dark elves ain't as bad as all that. They rule the tunnels near the surface and often hunt there, but they like to be left alone, which is more than what most Asgardians want. Uh, The tunnels are warm, heated by sulfurous springs and underground geysers. Even some of its rivers run hot, bubbling through the stone and shedding steamy mists. The stone here grows silvery, and the mists and heat make each drop that fall into a pool of water sound like a clear bell. Most sections are gaudy, full of glitter, but as thin as a harlot's curtain. The the harlot's curtain. Uh, The wild regions are crowded with underground forests of strange woods that need no sun, only the earth's heat. And the finest caverns of Svartalheim are carved from clear quartz or studded with shining pyrite or other jewels, both worthless to a jeweler, but just the sort of glittery stuff the dark elves enjoy. Like the elves, the realm is a place of display, not of substance. Don't buy jewels from the dark elves. Just put that out there right now. They may not be trying to cheat you, but they they, they don't. To what's it? What's you know valuable to them isn't exactly valuable to anyone else. There are you know several different towns. You've got Dokar, which is a bustling town of weights and measures, bright ribbons and scented cloth. You've got uh, Yigward, the city of the ancestors. Uh, it's that it's empty by comparison, or at least empty of the living. Yigward contains uh, shrines to every elven god, hero, master, bard, and saint. Dark elves make pilgrimages here to ask the help of their ancestors' spirits for great undertakings. And somehow, within the city, every elf can speak with the elven dead. That's why all dark elves plan to die in Yigward if they aren't lucky enough to die in battle. They don't make it, they don't all make it to Yigward, but the unlucky elves who die outside the city are always brought to the clan crypts in Yigward for burial so they can speak to their children and grandchildren and ancestors, or descendants rather. Uh, Every elven clan crypt is guarded by a single young sentinel, but the real guardians are dark. The restless guardian ghosts of elves who died outside the city and whose bodies were never recovered by the pious dark elves nearby, they forbid non-elves to visit the city. The banshees, haunts, and other spectral undead don't allow non-elves past the gates for any reason, and they don't hesitate to attack those who insist. And let's go ahead and wrap this episode up with pandemonium. My god, the wind, the howling, it's driving me mad! So, and we'll get to the madness of the wind, which is fantastic. So this layer 
name meaning uproar and commotion is a bit of a contradiction. Like, yes, there is a lot of noise here, as if every howling madman in existence was crammed into the place. But actually, the plane is nearly empty. So while there is a lot of uproar here in terms of sound, there is relatively little actual commotion in terms of activity. Pandemonium is basically a plain of solid rock honeycombed with all sorts of tunnels and caverns. It's always dark here, and a stale, chilly wind howls forever through the tunnels and in the few relatively sheltered places. It's still a breeze carrying haunting echoes that sound like the distant wails of torment. In most places, though, it's a constant gale that buffets one about, blowing sand and dirt into their eyes, snuffing out torches, and even all but the most sheltered lanterns, carrying away any loose items such as physical spell components, as well as carrying the sound of caterwauling likely to drive someone mad. As a matter of fact, continued exposure to the sound eventually drives one at least a little bit insane, but we'll get to we'll get to that here in a little bit. In the worst area, the wind's a deafening torrent that can lift a creature off its feet and carry it for miles, banding the body off rock formations and scraping it along rough cavern walls until there's nothing but ragged scraps. That sounds like the most horrible way to die, being carried off by the wind and just ricocheting off of you know, cliffs and, and cavern wall. Oh, geez. Until like you just, until there's just like chunks of you left. So darkness is also a real problem for most visitors to pandemonium. There are no natural sources of light anywhere on the plane. So most have to bring artificial light if they want to see anything. Pandemonium's tunnels run the gamut of sizes. In some places, they're tiny crawlways, scarcely large enough for even an imp to wiggle through. And at the most extreme, there are huge bores hundreds of miles across. Most fall somewhere in the middle of that range, though that's still large enough to dwarf the largest caverns on most prime material worlds. And there doesn't seem to be any kind of connection to tunnel size and intensity of the wind. You know, one might think that the wind would be slower in the larger passages where there's you know plenty of room and faster in the small ones where it's more constricted, but ultimately... No one knows where the winds come from. No one's sure where they where they come from or where they're going. But just they just know that some flow faster, some flow colder, and that's regardless of location. Uh, the river Styx also makes an appearance here, but the effects of its waters are a little bit different on pandemonium. Almost, they're not as severe, which is interesting. You know, simply touching the water doesn't have any negative effect. Although swallowing the water still requires a saving throw, which if failed, will cause the target to forget their entire life. Uh, but if you succeed, you just forget the past day. So may not be a bad idea to have a magical item, you know, uh, river sticks water from pandemonium as a sort of, you know, forgetting sort of uh, potion. There you go. There's a little magic item of the week uh now about that madness that i was discussing so insanity from continual exposure to the howling wind is a real danger and just about everything dwelling on the plane 
has succumbed to it to some extent. You know, some have gone completely off the deep end, but the majority remain relatively normal in most ways, manifesting their madness in one particular aspect or another. So visitors to Pandemonium, that includes PCs obviously, must make a saving throw periodically as called for by the DM. And the and the book does provide some guidelines, like usually at the beginning of the day, uh, usually at the end of the day. And they also said any time like when they would really just amp up the drama of the of the proceedings, which I love. Um, a failure progresses the character one step along the four stage path of and this I love the way this is called. It's called wind madness. So scholars in Sigil like to classify these stages as frustration, despair, hysteria, and resignation. So stage one, frustration, you're consumed with vexation, you're snappy and continually irritated by the smallest things and impatient to just get on with the business. Despair, this uh, second stage, you are feeling completely hopeless. It seems as if nothing's going to relieve the continual noise, so what's the use of fighting it? Those in this stage won't ever do anything on their own initiative. They're opting to sit glumly and sighing, allowing the group to make their decisions. In battle, however, they'll fight with a real desperation, almost like berserkers, because deep inside, they're about to crack and slip over the edge into hysteria, which is stage three. Absolutely desperate to get away from pandemonium's no- noise, immediately after failing their saving throw, they'll begin running madly about, screaming for it all to end, threatening anyone who gets in their way, pleading to the gods for mercy, and so on and so forth, until they finally just collapse in a heap. And that sort of uh, episode, I guess you want to call it, lasts for as many minutes as the difference between the... Um, between the DC and the and the failure. So if the DC is a 15, you fa- you roll a 10, you fail by five, that lasts for five minutes. Stage four, resignation. By this point, one has come partially to terms with the winds howling and accept that the noise uh except that the, no- the noise is something ultimately inescapable. Of course, ignoring the pain doesn't make it go away. Instead, it manifests itself in some other manner, like a nervous tick or or a phobia, a mania of some sort, some other idiosyncrasy. Pandemonium, like the other layers, has its powers and their proxies as well as, as its petitioners. But there is another class of denizen that few have heard of. Sigil's scholars call this class the Banished. But despite the name, they're not really a unified group. Like They're all called this, but they're not really the same. It's just a convenient term for lumping together all of the layers, diverse little groups of habitations and was chosen because so many of them are here because they um, are, or they or an ancestor uh, of theirs offended somebody with the power to transport them to Pandemonium and leave them there. How delightful. So Pandemonium's divided into four layers. We've got Pandesmos, we've got Cositus, we've got Phlegethon, and Agathian. Despite the fact that all four basically consist of dark, windy, subterranean passages, they are distinct enough for even your 
normal prime material world Joe to tell them apart easily. So Pandesmus is the first layer. So it's naturally the most traveled of the four, though that's not saying a whole lot. It's also marginally the least inhospitable. <laughs> so by a slight margin, you can almost kind of live there. Uh, it has the largest caverns overall and the calmest winds, which is to say like not like a little bit less than like a major gale, like a major windstorm. Consequently, it's also the most populated, that makes sense, of the three layers. This is where most of Pandemonium's powers hang out, and it's where most travelers from neighboring planes are encountered. Most of Pandesmos is a howling wasteland, but there are scattered spots of habitation. Uh, these range in size from areas as large as the snow-covered wastes of Loki's realm to ones as small as a single hermit's hovel with, you know, an occasional town or citadel in the mid-range. And Cositas, the second layer of Pandemonium, is often called the Layer of Lamentation. That's because the whole damn layer sounds like a wailing session of the most mournful bunch of funeral attendees someone could imagine. It's enough to put even a, a, a top-shelf banshee to shame. But this caterwauling isn't the result of mourners. It's just the wind. The wind here is shriller than in Pandesmos, and the tunnels on this layer tend to be smaller and twistier as well. As a matter of fact, they seem to have been carved almost intentionally just to make the winds wail this way. The entire layer bears the marks of having been hand-chiseled at some time in the far distant past. It would have been long enough ago that over the ages the wind has smoothed them a bit, and that those who ever dug them have been long forgotten. Not even the governors seem to know who did it, though they're apt to nod sagely like they do and then change the subject to cover their ignorance. Uh, likely it was some, you know, dumb power who hung around in pandemonium too long and went absolutely crazy, then lost all of its worshippers and is now rotting away in the astral plane somewhere, forgotten. On the other hand, the nature of the layers given rise to some unique sights, like Howler's Crag, the Harmonica. Although almost nobody comes to this lair, it's because it's just too utterly depressing. That makes it a good backwater for desperados to hang out in. They can stand the horrible noise. And then there are rumors of wondrous hidden treasures left behind by those tunnel creators. If only someone can find them. And then we've got Legethan, the third layer of Pandemonium the place of dark, deep darkness and dripping water. And it's not just like dark, like the rest of the plane. I mean, I'm talking it's really, really dark and so much colder than elsewhere. So how is that possible? Well, the tunnel walls here absorb light and heat radiation, which means lanterns and, you know, torches and all that only shine half as far and... This is, you know, in 18 days, it was called infravision. In 5e days, it's dark vision. Completely out of the question. Strangely enough, the rock doesn't feel terribly cold to the touch. It doesn't leach all warmth, just radiated heat. And so most folks from the prime material world, hailing as they do from a much more mundane place than the outer plains, find this completely mystifying. They don't recognize that there's a difference between radiated heat and contact heat. 
someone might as well tell them it's magic since they'll just go ahead and buy that explanation for just about everything. Another surprise on this layer is that the gravity is oriented in only one direction. That and the dripping water gives rise to great limestone columns, stupendous stalactites and stalagmites, and incredible curtains of rock in magnificent striations of color. Of course, with you know what with it being dark here all the time, with all that background rock absorbing half of any light that's brought here, you kind of have to stand a little bit closer than usual to actually see the color, but that's neither here nor there. And despite its slight tinge of evil, Legathen's a fair spot for sightseeing. The only real problem is that somewhere within the endless caverns, the queen of air and darkness keeps her realm, the fairy queen of the unseelie court. And that's certainly not a place that you'd want to stumble onto. Other than that, Legathen's reportedly home to some incredibly ferocious critters. There's been tales told of blind albino cave wolves, big as buffalo, giant crayfish, and monstrous slimes and puddings. There's even reports of dragon layers so huge they put most prime material dragons to shame. Of course, some of this may just be empty talk, but there have been some exceedingly large halls of treasure and some exceptionally precious items carried out of this layer in the past. So, the final layer of the final plane that we'll be discussing in this episode, Agathian. The strangest and deadliest layer of pandemonium, rather than caverns and tunnels, it consists of isolated holes. Basically, these immense bubbles within endless rock. They're incredibly difficult to find without barriers, so they're sometimes used as vaults where powers hide away things that they don't want stolen, like world-changing artifacts, or things that they don't want running loose, like vile creatures. So another sort of adventure hook, travel to Agathian, try to uh, steal you know, some sort of you know, magical artifact, or try to let something loose. Somebody who is imprisoned falsely by some power on the layer of pandemonium. So there you have it, folks, the Plains of Chaos. Again, apologies for the couple of days delay. Join us in just a few days as we look through and review the um, the fifth edition version of Planescape. It's been so much fun being able to dig into the old material. Like Planescape is one of my favorites up, you know, up there with uh, Ravenloft and Dark Sun, as far as you know, uh, uh, campaign settings go and all that, and so it's just it's been really fun, you know, getting to to read all this stuff again and and you know diving back into it, and I'm very excited to see what Five E has in store for us. So, uh, join us again next week. And like I said in the middle of the show, if you have any questions or ideas or thoughts about the future of the show, about you know the content that we create. Please let us know. You can email us at dndlorecast at gmail.com. You can jump on the Discord. There's a link to that in the show notes and talk to us there. Uh, or you can find us on any of the social medias. We would appreciate um, you know, also all of your thoughts and, and ideas that we would, you know, this this show only exists because of you listening to it. And so we want to make it the best show possible for you. So again, thank you so much. My name is Sergio. Fare thee well, dear listener, and until we meet again, may all your 20s be natural. 
Thank you for listening to the Dungeons and Dragons Lorecast. If you've enjoyed the show, consider following us on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at DD Lorecast, or jumping into the Robots Radio Discord to chat more with us about Dungeons and Dragons. We'll see you soon. Listening to a Robots Radio podcast. Smart shows for interesting people. Check out all the shows at robotsradio.net.